This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is Our Changing World, and I'm Alison Balance. Stand by for some sexy stick insect news at the end of the show. But first up, if I tell you that introduced predators such as stoats and feral cats are making a meal of our native birds, A, I know that this isn't news to you, and B, I suspect the image that's just come to mind is a forest? Well, that's all very true, but for this story, we're going to head out to another rather overlooked habitat, a braided riverbed in the Mackenzie Basin at the foot of the Southern Alps. In my experience, braided rivers from a distance look featureless and barren. But when you get close up, they are full of life and beauty. They're breeding grounds for some rare native birds, everything from black-fronted terns and black-billed gulls to ribulls and black stilts. And sadly, yes, these shorebirds face the same problems from introduced predators as our forest birds. Predator-free New Zealand 2050 has put the spotlight on how we might try and get rid of rats, stoats and possums across the whole country. At the moment, we use toxins or traps and there are plenty of clever folk dreaming up ways of improving these or inventing new systems. But in the meantime, our birds are still getting eaten. So could we buy some time for them and improve their chances of successfully producing chicks? It's an idea called chemical camouflage. It involves putting predators off the scent. Quite literally. Grant Norbury is from Manaki Whenua Landcare Research, He's been leading a massive two-year experiment trialling chemical camouflage in the Mackenzie Basin. There are four study sites on the Cass, Tekapo and Macaulay rivers, and each of these sites covers hundreds of hectares. Two sites are treated with chemical camouflage, and we'll get to the nitty-gritty of what that actually involves quite soon. The other two sites are controls that don't get treated. The measure of success is how many birds successfully nest and hatch their eggs. To do this, a team of five ornithologists have to find and follow 60 nests at each of the four sites. Late last year, I went to Tekapo to find out more. Chief Bird Observer Nikki MacArthur from Wildlife Management International offered to take me out to meet some nesting shorebirds so I could see for myself why they're so vulnerable to introduced predators. I also discover just how challenging it is to find 240 nests. So, Nikki, I'm pleased to say that the 
rain has stopped and although we can see new snow on the hills, actually the sun is trying to shine. So that's delightful. Yes, it's actually quite pleasant out here today. It's a nice gentle breeze and not too cold. Um, Being quite an exposed site, we can have some pretty windy and pretty cold days. So actually it's turned out really well for us. And this is what, the Cass River Delta? That's right, yes, yes. We're about 15 minutes from Lake Tekapo, and this is the, yeah, the delta of the Cass River where it empties into Lake Tekapo. Relatively weed-free, lots and lots of shorebirds. And yeah, it's, it's a, just a wonderful example of quite a nice piece of braided river habitat. OK, well, you've got a map there with all the nest marks. You've got them on your GPS, so you can lead us directly to what are we going to look at first. So we're going to a nest we've called CS62, which is a banded dotterel nest. And a couple of days ago it was still going. The bird was still incubating. So we'll go have a look at that and see what's up today. We are heading towards a small rock cairn. It houses a motion-triggered infrared trail camera that goes off every time something moves in front of it. Alison, if you kind of keep your eye on the rock pile, you may see the bird kind of jump off if the nest is still going. Um, if we don't see the bird, if, if we get to the nest and there's no bird around but there's eggs in the nest, we have to then check through the camera footage just to make sure they're still sitting on the eggs and that they haven't been abandoned. OK, so banded dotterel, I'm looking for quite a small bird. Yeah, a very small brown bird, um, only about 60 grams. They're not much bigger than a blackbird, really. And, of course, against this terrain, we're on, you know, very sort of brown and grey-coloured background here. They can be quite hard to spot. So we're basically looking for, for movement away from the nest is what you're sort of looking for. When they're standing still, they just disappear. They blend into the background. And... Yeah, this river delta is bare gravel. It's really low-growing cushion plants. It's quite a bit of hyracium. Yes, unfortunately. Yeah. There's weeds growing in it, but um, yeah, everything's low and brown and grey. Okay. That's right, yes. Yeah. So we're on a more sort of consolidated terrace that doesn't get disturbed by um, you know, floods very often, so there's a bit more vegetation on here than some of the cleaner gravels closer to the river. So we've arrived at the... Mound of rocks. Did you see anything move? No, no, I didn't. I didn't see anything get off. That makes our job slightly more difficult. So you can see about half a metre in front of the camera, there's the nest. Oh, yes. With three Beautiful, eggs. greeny, speckled eggs. They just look like rocks. They do, yeah. So they blend in remarkably well. So obviously with a camera pointing right at it, it's fairly easy to spot. We can imagine we're combing the riverbed every, every day um, without any clue as to where the nests are and that's that's what we're having to try and spot and um, we need to find 60 of those at each site so um, yeah it can be quite challenging at times and basically we use the birds to show us where the nests are so rather than just search systematically oh that would know, be hopeless completely <laughs> hopeless on an area the size of this so we basically we're basically looking for female birds because they do most of the daytime incubation and then backing right off until they're sort of comfortable with us been at a safe distance and if, if they have a nest with usually within sort of 15 to 20 minutes at most they'll head back there and, and plonk themselves down and then our next challenge then is to walk to the nest so that we can set the camera up which itself can be a bit of a challenge in an area like this with not many landmarks. So now you've got to check the trail camera to see whether a bird flushed but we missed it. That's right, yes. So we we can just see in front of us a band of doctrines flying Yeah, I just heard something fly, fly in and it's a little b- bobbing in the distance. So that's the, the male bird. He's got very big 
bold chestnut stripe across the chest and you can see how he's bobbing his head and chest up and down so that's a sign he's a little bit worried about us quite alarmed and he's he's coming towards us at the moment so that's a pretty good clue that that's the male that belongs to this nest so I suspect this nest is still going, but our other check we'll do is we'll grab the trail camera and just have a look at how many shots or clips that it's taken, and that'll give us a sense of how active, how much motion is occurring around the nest. It's an oyster catcher, getting a little upset. So the camera's telling us there's over a thousand photographs on this particular memory card. So that's, to me, a pretty good clue. The nest is still active, um, together with the fact that the male's hanging around acting a bit upset. And behind you, there are all sorts of dotterels flushing off nests because the, the oyster catcher was bothering them. Oh, right, that's <laughs> right. So we're actually fairly close to an oyster catcher nest. You can see an oyster catcher out in front of us, about 100 metres away, sort of scurrying around. Yep. Um, that's roughly the direction that the nest is in. They are extremely sort of flighty birds in this open habitat. So even though we're still quite some distance from the nest, we've already flushed that oyster catcher from the nest and they're getting a bit upset that we're here. It's all done, so it's just a matter of arming the camera again and putting it back on the nest. So how long will the dotterels incubate those eggs for? Between 26 and 28 days, typically. Yeah, it's a relatively long time. They have to try and get that nest through until it hatches. Once it does hatch, being a shorebird, the chicks are really precocious. So, so they're able to get up and just run around almost immediately. That's right, yeah. Within, within a few hours of hatching, they'll dry out they'll, and they'll be on their feet and, and running and they'll leave the nest very quickly afterwards. And they're pretty sort of autonomous after that. The, the adult birds will brood them quite a bit, particularly during the first week, because they're not terribly they're tiny little things and they're not terribly good at regulating their own temperature to start with. But after a week or so, they're pretty much sort of just doing their own thing. And the parents' main role is to sort of act as lookouts and, and basically defend them from any sort of threats that come come their way. Remarkable little things. Oh, well, we should probably move away and let the parents yes. back on. Yes, they've been very tolerant, actually. Yeah, they haven't pipped at us for a while. <laughs> so there's another dotterel running away, pipping yes. to our right there. So there's actually tons of birds out here. There are. At first glance, it doesn't seem like it. You're sort of looking across this barren riverbed and there's not much sign of life. But as soon as you start moving out into the riverbed and walking through, birds sort of suddenly just materialise out of nowhere and get up and start moving. Um, and particularly as, you know, as we're walking across the riverbed, we're walking through multiple territories of various shorebirds, banded doctorals and oyster catchers and ryebill. And um, as you go through these birds' territories, they tend to get a little bit upset, particularly if they've got nests or chicks, and sort of make themselves a bit more conspicuous. This dotterel nest and the nearby oyster catcher nest are just two of 240 nests that Nikki and the team have to find and keep an eye on. They're also watching some ryebill nests. Oh, so you can see the ryebill scurrying away to oh, the left here. it's just creeping off. And it's really handy to see that because it basically that just confirms the nest is still going. Now that's already running back towards its nest, so it's not nearly as flighty as those oyster catchers were. No, or even the banded dotterel. 
but the Rybill are remarkably confiding. So because we've stopped to have a look at that bird, um, it's decided, oh, well, I can actually just turn around and go back to my nest and sit down. Everything will be okay. They're quite dumpy little birds, aren't they? Yeah, a bit more solid than the banded doctorals. They're slightly larger and... You can see quite a colour difference too, so the, the, the back and the head and the wings of the banded doctoral is quite a warm brown colour. These ribel are a very cold sort of slate grey on, on their wings and their back and, their, and the, the top of their head. So that you can kind of see then you know, why they choose these very clean grey fresh gravels to, to nest on. They just blend in perfectly. Ribels have a uniquely shaped bill. So it's up and off. Hello you, would you look at your very odd bent bill, bent male to the right. And, male and female ribel are both quite similar to one another, but the, the giveaway feature is the male has a black stripe across the forehead, just above the bill, whereas the female doesn't. So this bird clearly doesn't, it's only a metre or two from us at the moment, it doesn't have that black stripe. So this is the female that's sitting on the nest at the moment. So ribels are quite rare, aren't they? Yes, they are, yeah. So they're the least common of the three shorebirds we're monitoring as part of this project. So I think our best estimates are that there are somewhere around 3,000 ribel left. So that's not, not it's terribly not very many. many. We think there are around sort of 19 to 20,000 banded doctorals left and significantly more pied oyster catchers, possibly in the high tens of thousands or low hundreds of thousands of birds. Our shorebirds are perfectly adapted in a number of ways to dealing with native avian predators that hunt by sight for the most part. So obviously they're extremely well camouflaged in terms of their plumage and their eggs are extremely well camouflaged. So when they're presented with a threat, the common response for these shorebirds is either to sit tight on the nest and be absolutely motionless like this ribill is and hope that they just blend in and, and don't get noticed. And similarly with their eggs, they just you know, once, once they've left their nest, they just hope the camouflage of their eggs is sufficient to avoid being spotted by the predators. But of course, that's absolutely no good whatsoever if it's a mammalian predator coming along hunting by smell. These birds have a, quite a strong smell, and so to a predator it, approaching that nest, it's extremely obvious that there's a bird sitting there and that there's a potential meal waiting for it. And, you know, if that bird is too slow getting off that nest, potentially the adults also at risk as well as the eggs or any chicks that happen to be there. Um, so, yeah, it's a perfect illustration of just how, unfortunately, now they're sort of not particularly well adapted to this new sort of ecology that we've created by introducing these, these mammalian predators into the system. And I guess that's the problem we're trying to find a tool to help solve with this, this chemical camouflage project. The scale of the predator problem hits home when Nikki shows me a video from one of the remote cameras. What we're seeing here is a banded doctoral nest at night and a stoat's darted in um, and actually been quick enough to grab the, the incubating female bird on the nest and in this case actually killed the adult bird, which you can see there just a very quick bite to the back of the neck and then the stoat darts out of frame. And it's quite sad to see because it's incredibly wasteful, so stoats are renowned to go on these sort of killing sprees that they do. Um, and so this particular stoat's darted and killed an adult female bird on the nest and left it. So it hasn't even eaten it? No, just ran off without, without touching the adult bird, without eating the bird, and also without consuming the eggs in the nest as well. So not only have we 
lost the nest, but we've also lost a, a productive adult bird as well. But the sad thing is that's not the end of the story for this particular nest. So after that event occurred, the very dedicated male came back and continued incubating those eggs. So here's a footage of the male coming in the next day and sitting on the nest with his dead mate lying on the ground less than a metre from the nest. And he continued incubating that nest for the next day or two until the next predator came along. And in this case it was a ferret who visited this nest a few nights later and discovered the remains of the adult female that the stoat had killed two nights before and the ferret scavenged the dead female that the stoat killed. But doesn't eat the eggs. Once again, this ferret uh, ignored these eggs and just wandered off again. And I think um, by this stage the, the male had given up incubating the eggs and the eggs were just left abandoned. So that's a failed nest. That's a failed nest. So yes, we had a stoat visiting that nest and then a ferret. And then just uh, to top it off, we've had the uh, a couple of nights later a, a cat was attracted to the nest as well. So stoats, ferrets, cats... What else is a problem for them? Yes, the the fourth big predator we have in the system, and it's one that not a lot of people are aware of at the moment, um, are hedgehogs. So this here is a a clip of a hedgehog preying on another banded doctoral nest that we were monitoring. And just hoovering up that egg. Absolutely, yep. Um, So the hedgehogs, yep, they're extremely good at locating these nests and they'll just sit there and eat the whole clutch. Um, we've got all sorts of heartbreaking footage of hedgehogs at nests for, you know, up to an hour or two at a, t- at a time and the parent birds just circling around the nest getting very upset, as you can imagine, and the hedgehogs just taking their time, eating the eggs one at a time. We know who's doing what, and our main culprit is actually hedgehog. So it depends on what riverbed you go to. Some studies have shown that cats are the primary predator on some riverbeds, but our riverbeds, it's hedgehogs. Two-thirds of the predation is by hedgehogs. This is Grant Norbury from Manaki Whenua Landcare Research, and he's leading the team testing a very novel idea for protecting breeding riverbeds, chemical camouflage. Well, it's an interesting one because it's a bit left of field. Uh, When we're trying to protect native fauna from predators... We generally think of killing them, I guess, killing the predators. That's the standard technique we use in New Zealand, and it's often around the world as well. And it works quite well, um, but not 100%. And um, we're always looking for alternatives, niche sort of alternatives. So what we're doing with this particular project is we're, we're, we're messing around with the psychology of predators. We're not actually removing them, but we're trying to outsmart them. How are you going to do that? Uh, well... What we're doing is we're sort of capitalising on a phenomenon in with predators, and that is that with gen, what we call generalist predators, they're generalists because they eat a whole variety of things, and we're capitalising on the fact that generalist predators, if they are sniffing something or seeing a cue or smelling a cue of something that's not rewarding, they'll give up on it. It's called habituation. They get bored with it. So if they uh, smell something that's odd, but it doesn't have any food reward, they'll they'll quit that one. That'll just go in the background of their senses. Um, so we're building on that. We're trying to capitalise on that. So what we're doing is we're putting out bird odour, which we get from chicken and quail and gulls, and uh, we put out the bird odour before the native birds arrive to breed. 
and the predators sniff that bird odour, they don't get a food reward and so they get bored with birds and so they stick to other parts of their food, which is in this case rabbits, and they concentrate on those. Now when you say you put out bird odour, can you be a little more specific? Are you extracting it from feathers or something? Yeah, yeah. In the case of chickens we are, because we can get lots of chicken feathers, thanks to Teagle, and that's good. And, um, and the other way is with quail, we buy quail and we uh, use whole bodies of quail. And the same with blackback gulls, because blackback gulls, they are native to New Zealand, but they are cold because they do cause problems. We extract the bird odour in the laboratory uh, and we uh, and we uh, concentrate that bird odour down to a liquid and then we uh, put it into Vaseline, which doesn't smell. Uh, and so we mix it with Vaseline and then we put it in syringes. And then our staff walk out on these riverbeds and they just put down little, they squeeze out little bits of this uh, Vaseline, odour impregnated Vaseline, and they squeeze it out, put it on a rock and smear it over that rock and keep walking on and do it again and again and again and again. It takes a lot of time. If this thing works, we would eventually look at deploying odour in a more cost-effective way, perhaps using drones. So, yeah, right, we prime the area a month before the birds arrive and the predators are sniffing it out and not getting a food reward. Once the birds arrive, they're quite cryptic. So the predators are using smell primarily to find these birds, not sight. We keep the odour going while the birds are there breeding so the predators are still being fooled part of the time. This sounds like something you could conceivably imagine doing, oh, I could do this in my backyard, but you're doing it over a huge area, aren't you? Yeah, we are. This method was published in Australia. In a, uh, it was quite a small study. It was done by a PhD student, Catherine Price, and her supervisor, Peter Banks, and it was done on a fairly small scale. So we're the first in New Zealand to test it on an operational landscape scale. And, yeah, you're right, the areas are big. They're sort of seven or 800-odd hectares, and we've got a couple of sites like that in the riverbeds of the Mackenzie Basin where we put out the odour, and then we have another couple of sites of that area where we don't put out odour. And on all four sites, we measure the survival, the nesting survival, or nesting success of things like banded dotterel, rybill, uh, South Island pied oyster catcher, which are all native and all have problems, all in decline. And, uh, yeah, we're getting some interesting results. So this is what, year two? Yeah, year two. How did year one go? We got quite a good result. We, um, on one side, it doubled the nesting success where we put out the odour. And the other side, it was, it was an increase, but it wasn't quite so spectacular. So we were encouraged by that. So this year, because we've got low replication, we're switching the treatments. But it's early days. I'm Alison Balance, and in this Our Changing World feature on chemical camouflage, I'm back out on the Cass River Delta to meet the odour deployment and predator monitoring team. Hi, I'm Gretchen Brownstein. I work for Landcare Research, and I'm part of the chemical camouflage team. So you've already been out around here this morning doing a bit of work? Yep, so we've been doing monitoring work this morning. We've got a series of tunnels out here, so 24 tunnels on the site that are split between the river and the terrace, and we're just looking to see what sort of animals or predators are out here. So they're baited each with a little piece of rabbit, and we've got some black tracking ink in there. And so every six days we go out and we have a look to see what sort of prints we can find. So what did you find today? Today I found hedgehog and cat, um, and that's about it, actually. We have in the past seen um, ferret in them quite a bit. But we also get a few insects through, um, skinks and weta as well. So sometimes they're a bit more interesting. 
And then tomorrow, same thing, somewhere else? Uh, tomorrow we're back on the odour. So we do odour every three days at each of the treatment sites. So tomorrow we'll be back on the lower Tikapo. Um, as a team of three, it takes us about seven hours to put out roughly 400-odd points. And, um, Across what sort of area? It's about a K wide, um, so it spans well spans the river, and about 5 Ks long. So pretty big area that we're covering. So how far do you walk every day? Uh, about 20, 25 Ks, each of us. And we did the maths for last year, and I think we worked out that we each walked the length of the South Island. <laughs> and I just have to say, the wind has suddenly picked up. <laughs> yep, it was nice um, and calm before. You're getting all the weather today. So we've had rain, we've had sun, and now we're getting the delta wind. This is Hayley um, Ricardo. Yeah, so I brought you a map to look at of our Tekapo site. So um, you can see that it's covered it's in... It's pretty well covered. ...all different coloured dots um, right across the river and then up onto the terraces as well. And our job is to get to every single one of those points and put a little blob of Vaseline. Um, we've got four flavours of Vaseline that we put out. We've got chicken flavoured and there's two different concentrations, so 10% and 40%. So obviously the 40% is a lot smellier than the 10%. And then we've also got quail and gull scent as well. So it's like a buffet of yeah. food smell. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm curious, is it strong enough for you to smell or would you have to be something like a cat or a ferret to smell it? No, we can smell it, yeah, especially the 40% chicken. That just smells horrible. But the other one's not so bad. So you don't think much of it, but the hedgehogs clearly liked it. Yeah, yep, they definitely get excited about it. Yeah, so on an on an odour day, that's what we call the when we're putting out the chemical camouflage, we probably look a bit crazy to an observer. We're just zigzagging backwards and forwards across the river, bending down, putting a glob of Vaseline, getting up, walking to the next point. Probably the strangest job I've ever had, and explaining to people why I smear Vaseline on rocks is... Um, yeah, it can be tricky. <laughs> well, that's a little more sophisticated. When I first heard about this idea, I actually had visions of you running around sprinkling chicken feathers everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The important thing is the odour, but what we're trying to do is put odour everywhere without leaving any kind of food reward. So when we put it on the rock, we actually smear it around. So it's not like a glob that something could come and eat, but it's more of a something that would just sniff. Quite a lot goes into this project, I have to say. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting concept to test, but in terms of um, implementation in the future, it would have to be refined a lot um, to make it a useful technique, yeah. And he is hoping that this chemical camouflage works, because at the moment, the breeding birds, the dotterels, ribills and oyster catchers, are getting hammered. When I visited, halfway through the two-month study, Nikki had already seen what had happened to 35 nests on the Cass River Delta, which was a control site with no smelly Vaseline to distract the predators. Of those 35 nests, we've had 12 of those hatch and 23 that have failed for one reason or another, mostly because they've been preyed upon by those three or four main mammalian predators, so hedgehogs, ferrets, cats and So two-thirds of them have failed? Yes, that's right, yep, which is fairly typical. So the CAS is a non-treatment site this year. Um, so both this year and last year we found that two-thirds to three-quarters of the nests at those two sites don't make it through. They fail um, for the most part because of 
those predators that we've been seeing on the video footage. So it's pretty much the same story on the upper Tekapo, but what's happening on the lower Tekapo, which is a treatment site? That's right, yeah. So that's a treatment site where we've had a reasonable number of nest outcomes already. So we've had 25 nests which have um, reached completion. And of those 25, 12 have hatched and 13 have failed. So that's a hatching success rate of closer to 50%, which is interestingly quite a bit higher than our paired non-treatment site, the Upper Tekapur. So it's still pretty early days, but it's looking quite interesting, this result, quite promising. Either way, though, it's still a tough job out there to be a pair of birds trying to successfully get your chicks away. Absolutely. Your hit rate's not that great. No, no. And these are you know, relatively long-lived, relatively slow breeding birds with long, longish incubation periods. They can't get too many nesting attempts through each year. They don't have too many goes at it each year. So, um, you know, just having done this work for the last two years and just been watching all of this footage, I kind of marvel in a way that we have any of these birds left, to be honest. It's not all death and gloom, though. The trail cameras have recorded some miraculous moments that are a testament to the persistence of riverbed birds, such as the wee banded dotterel. This is a particularly lucky nest that we had at the Cass Delta recently. So there are some non-human-related causes of nest failure that these birds have to deal with. So, of course, being riverbed nesting birds, one of the obvious things that they are at risk of having their nests flooded from time to time. And we had one particular nest at the Cass Delta where the bird chose a relatively risky nest site. So here's some footage of a bird nesting on a very, very narrow gravel island. That water is just centimetres away. Yes, yes. So she's picked a very um, risky site in some respects. So she's only centimetres from the water's edge. Possibly a very clever site in other respects in that um, we do know that shorebirds that nest on islands surrounded by water are less susceptible to predation by predators. Because predators don't like getting their feet wet? Exactly, yeah, particularly the hedgehogs. So in some respects she's very clever at doing this, but in other respects she's taking quite a high-risk approach and nesting so close to the water's edge. And in this particular case it almost didn't pay off for her. So this next, next clip here shows a flood event that came through. So it's raining, late... the river's gone, come up, and, and, and there's water everywhere. And the nest has been inundated, and the parent bird's trying to, desperately trying to keep his eggs from floating away in the flood, basically. So the eggs are bobbing around in the water, and he's trying to keep them together and gather them together. Um, and in fact, both the male and the female bird, they were sitting on the eggs in the water, trying to keep them warm. Um, the remarkable thing is this usually doesn't have a happy ending, as you can imagine, but in this particular case, we had this miraculous outcome where the eggs didn't wash away. The birds continued to incubate them even when they were sort of bobbing around in the water. And two weeks later, we had this outcome. Little so, fluffy chicks. Yes, so we're looking at a still image here of three newly hatched fluffy chicks on a now dry island. Um, so these three chicks have absolutely no idea just how lucky they were, how close they came to being washed away in a flood a couple of weeks earlier. Thanks, Nicky. And if you'd like to see the video and photos he was talking about, just head to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Now that was Nicky MacArthur, and he works for Wildlife Management International. 
We also heard from Grant Norbury, Hayley Ricardo and Gretchen Brownstein and they all work at Manaki Whenua Landcare Research. Now, to wrap up the show, the discovery of the missing male stickmen, or as I call them, stick insects. Here's Steve Trewick from Massey University. This latest discovery is of a male stick insect amongst a group of species that previously we'd only ever found female stick insects. There's one group in particular called, we call it Acanthozyla, which means prickly sticks, and uh, there are lots of different shapes, lots of different morphotypes, lots of diversity in other words, but they're all female. So tell me how that works. If you've got no males, you've only got females, how do they reproduce? Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? So these sick insects have a trick that allows them to reproduce without uh, sexual fertilisation. So in other words, the females uh, produce fertile eggs um, without having ever met a male, and those fertile eggs hatch into daughters, and those daughters produce fertile eggs, and so effectively they're what people often refer to as cloning themselves. They're just producing daughters and daughters and daughters. You've probably heard of this, asexual reproduction or parthenogenesis. Isn't that a nice word? Now we're talking about a New Zealand group of stick insects, remember, but the mysterious missing male turned up in the United Kingdom, where a number of our stick insects have established small populations. So what was Steve's reaction when he heard the news? Well, when we got contacted by our colleagues in the UK and said, oh, well, I think we found a male acanthozyla, we, we were politely sceptical. So they, they sent some material to us and we did the genetic work to, to confirm that, yeah, amazingly, um, it, it really did look like it was, you know, it's a male. And that it should turn up in the UK uh, where the number of sick insects must be much smaller than in New Zealand. Uh, I think really just just reflects the abundance of of keen uh, amateur entomologists rather than of uh, male stick insects. So they might have found the only one? I think of that event, yeah. The question is, if that one-off is actually able to transfer sperm, can he he sort of reshape his local population? So how does an all-female population of stick insects manage to suddenly produce a male? There is a pathway, and that seems to be what's happened in this case, is that a chromosomal mutation can result in the transformation of what would have been a female stick insect into a male. So how does that work? As humans, we have XX chromosome for a female, XY chromosome for a male. How does it work in the stick insect? Uh, exactly. So it's, in a way, it's slightly simpler because in these stick insects, the females are XX and the males are X nothing so they're x blank so in principle on paper see how you can generate uh, a male from a female simply by failing to copy across one of those x chromosomes when you're generating a cell that's going to develop into uh, an animal so it's just a case of oops i just lost that x yeah the curious thing is that as far as we can tell is that when a stick insect that sort of was destined to be a female loses a, a, a sex chromosome and, and ends up being a male, it's not clear that he's actually you know, fertile as a male. Can you test this? 
Well, you could test it. If you had it alive, you could then do your, your experiments to sort of give it a female and see whether it produces uh, offspring from sexual reproduction. Do I take it from this, this stick man is no longer yeah, alive? Yeah, little, little stick man in the UK, um, he died in captivity, so that experiment hasn't been done. But um, we have done similar experiments with another group of stick, New Zealand stick insects called uh, Clitarchus, uh, where we have populations, some of which are sexual and some of which are not sexual. And so we're actually able to do the experiment of taking a female from a asexual population, an all-female population, that's been like that for some generations, and then offer a sexual, you know, a male, and see whether mating takes place and see whether... Well, effectively, males are, some males are produced from that, showing that there has been um, a gamete transfer. So what have you found? Does she carry on just doing her thing, or does she go, ooh, there's a male, I'll take advantage well, of that? Well, they certainly show an interest, um, and the males uh, you know, show an interest, and there does seem to be copulation, but so far in the first uh, several generations of experiments we've done... Um, this, the, the fertility, so the the proportion of offspring that come from sexual reproduction is very low, suggesting that um, the females aren't very good or something has happened that makes them not very effective at uh, capturing the sperm from the males and, and making use of it. And that's a bit of a conundrum because that suggests, oh dear, if you've gone down this parthenogenetic route, it might be numerically beneficial, successful for a while, um, but you may miss out on sort of evolutionary opportunity because you can't generate diversity by sexual reproduction later on. Does that mean they're less likely to be able to adapt to a changing world? I think that would be probably true to say about um, a population that was parthenogenetic. The interesting thing, though, is that a changing world exerts natural selection, and... Um, even when the, the beneficial feature, like being able to reproduce sexually, even when that's rare, selection can pick up on it and increase its advantage. So even though we find in our experiments low numbers of offspring produced by sexual reproduction, in the right environment, they may be at a substantial advantage and therefore you know, natural selection will sort of increase their value in subsequent populations and so it could be that that would allow a population to swing back to sexual reproduction. If you wanted keen citizen scientists in New Zealand to look out for missing males over here, what would they be looking for? Oh, yeah, that's an interesting question. Males and female stick insects are quite different you know, of the same species. The males nearly always are slightly shorter and, and, and always quite substantially thinner and when they're adults the males have quite a sort of a knobbly bit on their, their hind end, and that's to do with the, the claspers they use to hang onto, a, onto the female when they're in copula. Because when they're mating, they'll travel around in a pair. The female will be doing the hard work with this little wimpy, sticky chap um, riding along on her back. And we suspect that you know, the selective advantage of him being particularly wimpy is that it reduces the, you know, the, the visibility of the female that's uh, carrying a male um, perhaps reduces the chances of predation. So you're looking for a runt with a knobbly bottom? Yeah, a skinny runt with a knobbly bum. <laughs> but uh, 
they're notoriously tricky because um, males of lots of species uh, can look like males of other species. And um, so finding a male uh, requires some kind of testing to confirm that it belongs to a particular species. So it's not going to be easy to solve this mystery here in New Zealand? It's not, but um, I think we'll be looking at it and we'll be putting out a bit more information about the sort of size and dimensions of, of what this these unusual males uh, would look like. What we still don't know, though, is that if a male does appear from that mutational event, that chromosomal mutation, whether it is at all able to be fertile. Um, so you've got two separate things going on. You've got the ability of, the, of, of, of asexual females to accept sperm and make use of it, and then you've got this sort of somewhat magical uh, process of males uh, emerging through chromosome mutation. And if they just look and behave like males but actually don't have the vital you know, ability to produce uh, good gametes, then they'll always just be one-offs. Thanks, Steve. That was evolutionary biologist Steve Trewick from Massey University. And that's me for tonight. But the show is available 24-7 at our webpage rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld and on your favourite podcast provider. You can stay in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter where we are RNZ Science. It's been great to have your company but for now it's good night from me, Alison Balance. Mate wa. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.